Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Jermaine Clement was nominated for an Emmy for his HBO show Flight of the Concords. As is often the case with comedians, his love of comedy started in elementary school. I mean, a friend changed the words to a jingle uh, about bacon, and we made it all about um, genitalia, and <laughs> and that was dizzying, you know, <laughs> for both of us. We, yeah, it was just so hilarious to us. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Jermaine Clement about working on the film People, Places, Things. It's about a graphic novelist trying to get through a hard breakup. There's plenty of humor in the script. There's a lot of sadness in there, too. Even up to the first day of shooting, and someone on the crew asked, is this a comedy or a drama? And Jim Strauss, the director, just said, I don't know. <laughs> and so that was the perfect answer for me. Later on, I'll sit down with Jonathan Ames. He's the creator of the Star series Blunt Talk. It's more of a novelist than a showrunner, and he'll tell me about the emotional cost of having to work on a TV show with a whole bunch of people. I did cry one time this season, and I became catatonic. There was a moment of stress, and I lost all mobility. But, you know, we need to suffer. That's how we learn. Plus, I'll tell you about something we're calling the Who Moved My Cheese incident. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. My first guest is the comedian and musician Jermaine Clement. He's half of the comedy duo Flight of the Concords. He's also the lead in the movie People, Places, Things. Here's a clip from the movie. He plays a cartoonist struggling through a breakup. In this scene, he walks in on his partner making out with another man whose shirt is already off. In the clip, you'll hear her hand her shirt over to him. Charlie. It's not what you think. I think you've been having sex. Okay. It is what you think, but you pushed me into this. I was just looking for the matches. Yeah, I better go. No, stay. I want you to be here. I'd really like to go. Yeah, why don't you go? He's not going anywhere. Okay, well, could he at least put on a shirt? This isn't about him. No, I know. It's about us, but... I would feel more comfortable if he had a shirt on. Fine. Can you put a shirt on? There. Is that better? No, of course not. That's much worse. I don't care. Stop looking. What happened? I thought we were happy. You thought we were happy? Well, happiness is not really a sustainable condition. Right. See what I mean? Let's take it easy. I'm sure it's really hard for him to process all this so suddenly. Shut up. Hey, man, I'm... I know that you're upset, but I'm just, I'm trying to help here. I'm going to fight you. Please don't. Don't do that. There are children downstairs. Oh, my God. No, no. Careful. Will. Stop holding me. Jermaine Clement, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Have you ever been in a fight before? Not since I was a teenager. What kind of fight were you in when you were a teenager? I used to do a paper run, or you call it a paper route, right? Yeah. A guy from my school came out onto his onto his porch, and as I biked past, he called me a grommet. What do you think of that? I don't. I, Shocking. Honestly, I don't think much because I'm not, I'm not familiar with the local terminology. Oh, I don't. I don't think he knew what it meant. Uh, apparently, it means a surfing novice. Okay. Which, um, <laughs> it's, it's more the feeling <laughs> that he um, injected into the into the word. Anyway, I started arguing with him and uh, then his mum came out and instead of telling us to stop fighting, she also called me a grommet. Uh, Anyway, the next day at school, one of us brought up what had happened and then I said in front of the whole class, Jason's mum's a grommet. Wow. And, uh, of course, this, this is... They did this, not. They did not at the time know the tournament. None of us fair knew play. What, no, none of us knew what it meant. 
Anyway, we had a huge fight that that sprawled out from the classroom out into the quadrangle and um, hundreds of people gathered around and watched it. This is the last time I had a fight. I, I steer away from that kind of thing now, of course. Um, t- tell me a little bit about what it, what uh, what the place you grew up was was like. Uh, that's what it was like. Just a <laughs> bunch of surfing slang, <laughs> misused yeah, surfing and it's insults. I, I guess it was a, a small town, twenty thousand people. And I used to live in the neighbouring town. My mother worked in the cheese factory. My my father worked in the meatworks. So, um, so we get cheese and sausages and and chops. And my grandfather worked in the biscuit factory, making cookies. That is. And uh, my grandmother worked in a clothes factory. Was there some kind of time when you like figured out that making things was the thing you wanted to do? You know, there's a lot of art in my family. People play music and paint and things like that, but um, not necessarily for a job. I knew if I could find a way to do that, then I'd be pretty happy. What was the first comedy that you did professionally? Uh, Well, I met a lot of people in what you call college. Uh, By the way, that means high school. Oh, sorry. So you all seem really silly. It's something that you call college a lift, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and we you know we put on on shows that were part of universities so and not paid but from those groups we we put on stuff in a local theatre which paid us and uh, quite amazing really because we had so little experience like sketches yes yeah, sketches one of the first ones was um, so you're a man it was called and it was uh, Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords and Taika Waititi who I um, did what we do in the shadows we're both in it and we um, did sketches about manhood and we talk about you know urinal etiquette was one uh, you know it was very college kind of stuff but uh, <laughs> it was funny and we were paid for it how did you meet those guys because those are guys that you've been working with now for like 15-20 years yeah yeah um, doing those shows so at university too, we uh in different classes, but we did auditions for a drama club, which is kind of one of the nerdier clubs. Not the nerdiest. The nerdiest is the Monty Python Club. And I remember on a club's day at university, there were two tables next to each other. And I had never really seen a lot of Monty Python, but it sounded like something I'd like. And uh, I was looking at that club, and they showed movies and stuff and, you know, talk about them the movies and the shows. And then the next door was the drama club, which sounded pretentious to me. And I talked to the Monty Python guys, and they were nerdy for sure, but I liked the idea of what they were doing. And then the drama club, the guy at the the drama club just said to me, there are no girls in that club. (laughs) (laughs) So I joined the drama club. You had a killer closer. (laughs) You know how to make the sale. (laughs) Yeah. So I joined the drama club, yeah, and then I met those other guys. <laughs> um, what what were your first impressions of those guys? Brett, I had seen uh, around town playing music. He'd play in jazz bands, playing drums, and he always seemed really cool. Like these were all cool. They were a couple of years younger than me and my friends, and they were like they were too young to be in the bars they were playing at, and they just um, playing. <laughs> They're teenagers, but they're playing jazz from the the sixties and the forties, and it just seemed yeah, it seemed really interesting. And then I then I did a show with him and found out that he was also funny. You know, I mean, I can still remember the uh, the first time I saw both those guys um, and Tycho. I instantly disliked him. Uh, he just seemed too confident and. Uh, I remember seeing him leaning over a girl in the university library um, helping. I'm doing those air, air, um, speech mark things, um, helping a girl with her work. But there's uh, now I know that he definitely didn't know whatever it was she was trying to learn. Well, he's such like a big, handsome, yeah, charismatic guy. Was he you like don't that like, then? You don't like that. 
Oh, even more so. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Give me a break, guy. Yeah, just get out of my face, man. Get away. What? Uh, but then, uh, yeah, well, then when I happened to see him that day, and then later on that day, I auditioned for my first thing at university, which was um, a capping review, which is something that apparently not very many people have ever heard of, but something my university did where they put on sketches. And uh, we had a lot in common. Like, I knew you giving me the look like such as. Yeah, sure. Uh, just like, well, we're both kind of, we're both mixed race, Maori and European. So, uh, and everyone else around us was white. <laughs> so, and then, you know, it's a very specific kind of knowledge that you have or a group when you're mixed race like that. Like, it's almost though, you know, you see these people, they look like this, and these other people, they look like this. But and and you're you're in between, and you realise that they say the same things about each other, and uh, there's actually they they're talking up the difference, you know. It's it's actually not as different as they think. It seems to me like you could um, call it pass in a way that <laughs> right, I know that Taika that Taika couldn't. A pass is white. Yeah, like if if yeah, you yeah. wanted to just like. You know, if you wanted to play it off, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think I, you know, when I was smaller, I did. When I was when I was a little kid, I I did. I was worried about people finding out and it leading to a a, um, a new avenue of teasing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's also when when you talk about hearing people talking about the other ethnicity, mm. I, I imagine that that led for you, especially like as a young person, as you said, in situations where people were unguarded in a way that they might not have been oh, otherwise. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, because I've got um, light skin. Yeah. 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 And uh, and then when I was with my Maori family, they wouldn't think of me as being white. So they, they would be unguarded as well. Did the two of you ever talk about that? Did you and Taika Waititi ever talk about that when you became friends in school? I think we made a lot of um, we made a lot of jokes about we just uh, talking characters a lot, and the characters would definitely be a mix. You know, we'd be using university terms, but saying them in a very in a broad Maori accent. You know, like walking around saying, um, "This rain is unrelentless." You know, stuff like that, and just talking like that, almost Shakespearean, but in this. Um, in this voice of the um, the stereotype dumb Maori person that you know people put on. I want to play some Flight of the Concords, um, which of course is the thing that made you uh, famous here in the United States. It was it, it is a uh, guitar comedy duo mm-hmm. that ended up becoming an HBO show that was. Uh, that took your your songs from your stage act and you know made it into a kind of slightly fantastical musical narrative musical. Yeah, so let's let's take a, let's just take a listen to one of the songs. So this is a song that you Jermaine wrote to cheer up your friend and bandmate Brett, who we've been talking about, and the song's called Brett. You've got it going on, and, and this is the end of the song. No doubt about it, we'd be getting crazy if one of us was lucky enough to be born a lady. Oh, if one of us was a lady. I was your man, if I was your man, we could sometimes it gets lonely and I need hate a woman. And then I imagined you with some bosoms. In fact, one time when we were touring and I was really lonely and we were sharing that twin room in the hotel. I put a wig on you when you were sleeping, I put a wig on you. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And I just lay there and spooned you. Oh, Brad, you got it going on. So, hopefully that made you feel better. Can I please have a look at the lyrics? This is another one of your weird songs, man. In what way? Where's that bit? Sometimes I put a wig on you when we're on tour. Put a wig on you? No. I didn't say anything like that. (laughs) Well, that's clearly not true. (laughs) Uh, To what extent did the uh, uh, sort of doubles act dynamic between the two of you reflect made-up comedy differences in characteristics, and to what extent was it a reflection of your actual relationship and the actual differences between <laughs> um, Well, we did at one point live in the same house, and uh, we 
We spent a long time uh, touring together, and it could get it could get kind of tense, but it's such a um, a battle. Say, for instance, touring around England, getting on trains, going you don't know which way it's you're supposed to go. You get on the wrong train. <laughs> you know the the battles together mostly. You know, not against each other. So uh, the most tense thing we ever did was um, do that show because it was. Uh, a lot of time with each other, you know, and hard work. work, I imagine too. Yeah, it turned out being harder than we imagined uh, because it was like recording an album and doing a TV show simultaneously. Uh, so really, you'd really want to only do one of those things. And you could sort of see at some point the repertory of songs was gone. Mm. And then I just imagine the two of you guys being like, oh, okay, we had an act that was great, great act. You know, we had these solid dozen songs, but we've been using two an episode. Yeah. You know, we never spent... Some songs you work on for weeks, and some you write in half an hour, and you don't know how they're going to turn out. But in a live circumstance, especially then when people didn't record stuff on their phone, you'd you'd do it in front of 100 people and they... If it works, kind of, you keep doing it again and you fix it up. And if it if it fails, you uh, you just abandon it. So it's not like the songs necessarily took a long time, but um, we couldn't we didn't have that thing where we could test it in front of people anymore. It just had to go straight on the television. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor and comedian Jermaine Clement, recorded last year. He's probably best known as half of the comedy music duo Flight of the Concords. They had their own show on HBO. He's also the star of the movie People, Places, Things. Were there comics or comedy acts from New Zealand that you admired when you were a young person, or was it... I mean, New Zealand's not a huge place. No. There is one uh, who's a big influence on me still. Uh, his name's John Clark, and he used to have this character by the name of Fred Dagg who was a very dry but silly farmer character. And they had somehow... Now, this is this gives you an idea of television in New Zealand at the time. There used to be a show, primetime Sunday night, called Country Calendar, and sometimes they would just follow a farm around for a full half hour. You know, it would be like, get up at four in the morning and uh, go and check on the cows. And, <laughs> and then you would see his whole day. Um, and so somehow this local comedian... <laughs> got to do an episode of this as a as a farmer character and it's still very funny i think it was 1974 so it's a it's a mockumentary and uh i i still love watching him he still does stuff he, he's moved to australia and and does a lot of political satire uh but it's still good what's it like as a as a young performer to be in new zealand next door to australia this country with a huge comedy scene, mm. you know, the maybe the biggest comedy festival in the world, and um, yeah. it's sort of expanded across the country in the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And Well, the first time I went there with, with um, the show I talked about that Brett and Taika were in, we had just stormed it in New Zealand, full houses, you know, and, and it was our first thing that we put on ourselves, so we were really excited. And then we went to Australia and just no one came. <laughs> we were, uh, uh, you know, we were 20, and... and they would, the theatre would make us. We, we'd have these costumes that looked like a naked body, which was these um, flesh-coloured bicycle shorts, so that we could play. <laughs> we could play both roles of, of male and female, and uh, they would force us out into the street to fly up for our show wearing these costumes, which was so humiliating. Funny on stage and fun on stage when you've got people in your environment. But out in the real world, you, you get some really bad looks, and we could never get anyone to come to the show. And uh, we'd sometimes be doing it for oh, very, very small audiences. So, so that was tough. But when um, by the time we did Flight of the Concords and we went to Melbourne, um, we had played in a few places and had a reputation. So, so um, and, and actually, uh, Australian TV was one of the first places that put. The Concord's on. We we played on regularly on a TV show that would show different stand-ups, so uh, it was actually quite handy. What was your relationship like with New Zealand TV and and media? 
I, I, I'm so nervous these days because anything I say about them ends up in the media. Like, <laughs> even even me saying this could be uh, headline news. <laughs> Jermaine Clement claims anything he says turns into a headline. <laughs> Uh, and I've got to be really careful. I, I, um, me and Brett worked with the BBC, which is the you know obviously the state broadcaster of the UK, and uh, I I just loved that system where they f- they go out and actively find people who are making things and and put them into a different medium. And New Zealand doesn't do that. You know, New Zealand has a weird system where you where you write a proposal and you. S- send it in just kind of unseen like it's some sort of project and then uh, in about three months time you will receive a no and that's how it works <laughs> America is different again where you uh, it's, um, networks and um, you have a meeting with them and then you work on something and then you pitch it to them and it's, it's another system again but New Zealand's very has this very peculiar system of the this uh, anonymous um, submission. I still pitch shows in New Zealand, and they never get accepted. But I still, you're I still pitching. Pitch you're pitching New Zealand TV shows. I, I'm pitching one at the moment. Going I, through? Yeah, no, no. But uh, I'll, I'll still try. What is what is their objection? You're too successful and popular. <laughs> well, at the moment, I've just I just pitched one, and then I I basically described um, the system in another interview. The system that I just described to you, I described in another interview, but um, in, in um, less diplomatic terms. And, uh, <laughs> it's, and it's in the newspapers, and, the, and it's been criticised. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, because what I do is so small scale, you know, like it's it's not for, for a huge audience, really, but in New Zealand, it has this perception. Well, I think also, you know, you have a, uh, you are carrying the weight of being a famous international New Zealander, like yeah. it's a, it's not a huge country, and you're while you may be peddling a niche product, it's... I'll be like Russell Crowe, where they, where they don't even claim me anymore. <laughs> Are you planning some abuses that we're not aware of? <laughs> you know, throw some telephones I, at people. I could get that way. <laughs> You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Jermaine Clement after a break. He'll talk about doing some more naturalistic acting in people, places, things and about the future of Flight of the Concords. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, before we get back to the show, Guy Raz hosts the newest NPR podcast, How I Built This. It's about innovators and entrepreneurs and the stories behind the movements, companies, and products they created. Each episode captures triumphs, failures, serendipity, and insight told by the founders of some of the world's best-known companies, like Epic Records founder L.A. Reid and global restaurateur Jose Andres. Find How I Built This now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, now back to the show. Instead of door busting for a plasma TV this Black Friday, how about you stay in and snag the best deal of all? Max Fun Con 2017 tickets. Max Fun Con West returns to Lake Arrowhead next June, and Max Fun Con East is back in the Poconos next September. Tickets for both go on sale Friday, November 25th, and they're going to sell out fast. So mark your calendars and visit MaxFunCon.com on November 25th to secure your spot. MaxFunCon, way more fun than a smartwatch or whatever. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue Headphones. For 20 years, many of your favorite artists have used Blue microphones in the studio. Now, Blue's radical headphone design lets you hear new details in your favorite music. Find out why Esquire magazine called them the perfect headphones. Visit the store at blue-headphones.com and use coupon code NPR for a special price. Blue, carpe eardrum. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Jermaine Clement from the comedy duo Flight of the Concords. I want to play a clip from What We Do in the Shadows, which is a movie that you did with Taika Waititi a couple of years back. And um, it's a mockumentary about vampires, and they are trying to adapt to modern life. And so in in this scene, they're sort of walking down the street in a group, and they run into a group of werewolves. 
Uh, on Wednesdays, they do like a fair factor competition. You can win like t-shirts and um, hats oh, yeah. and spot prizes. I can smell like, werewolves. Like, we are just about to walk past a werewolf, so some <laughs> might go down. Look out, guys. Don't catch fleas. What's that, mate? Deacon. Sorry, what? Keep going. Keep walking. What? Keep we walking. heard that, mate. We've got sensitive hearing. Have you? Yeah. What are you filming? It's a music video, leave. is it? We don't want any trouble. Well, I why do. Did you, why did you start Have it? Have I got your heckles up, huh? Why don't you go smell your own crotches, huh? Oh, come on, what are you talking about? We don't smell our own crotches, we smell each other's crotches and it's a form of greeting. You're on camera, yeah. mate. Don't, don't do what? it. What? It's okay, because I know this guy. It's Count <laughs> <laughs> Hey, 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 don't swear. Sorry, they... they yeah. We're very, werewolves, not swear. What are we? Werewolves, werewolves not, not swearwolves. It's like one of the one of the things that's really funny about this movie is just how kind of dopey and lonely these guys are. Mm. Like the, the, the ennui, yeah, sort of pathetic. Yeah, because they have to. Because anytime they have a they have a friend who's a person, and they, it's like a really big deal for them not to eat him. Mm. <laughs> they just really want to eat him. But it seems like a roommate situation that's not that far off the roommate situation that you described early in your <laughs> comedy career, like living in a weird rundown house. And... Yeah, yeah. Um, that idea we actually had 10 years before we, um, you know, made the movie and put it out. So parts of it were from our 20s and parts of it were from our approaching 40s. A lot of the focus on kind of mortality and what have you done with your life was from was a more recent edition. <laughs> In the lifestyles, a, a younger one, and the um, the vampire, in a way, is the ultimate Peter Pan character, or is another kind of a character that doesn't grow up. It doesn't, you know, he's stuck in the same age. Well, your character in the movie is one who has been sort of arrested at the peak of his, you know, vampire seductiony power, but has kind of. It's gone to concede. Yeah, he's just sort of broken down as time has passed. <laughs> yeah. We try and suggest that you still age in some way. You know, still time still breaks you down, even though you may not necessarily look older. <laughs> um, when, you were, when you were younger and you were with this uh, group of guys making comedy, did you have a sense of mission or were you sort of just goofing around? Uh, b- both. Definitely both. I just just having fun, but also want to change New Zealand comedy. Yeah, which I failed, and in in uh, we all <laughs> we all started doing stuff in other countries. <laughs> right, let's hear another more fully realized and produced "Flight of the Concord song from the TV show. It's called "Inner City Pressure," and it is, um, you know, it's a it's a classic message song. In a, in a city. Counting coins on the counter of the 7-Eleven From a quarter past six till a quarter to seven The manager, Bevan, starts to abuse me Hey man, I just want some muesli Neon signs, hidden messages Questions, answers, fetishes You know you're not in high finance Considering second-hand underpants Check your mind, how to get so bad What happened to those other underpants you had? Look in your pockets, haven't found a cent yet Lennon's on your board Have you paid your rent yet? In a... When we were talking about Flight of the Concords, I realized that I was um, kind of switching back and forth between past and present tense. <laughs> um, I didn't notice that. Um, to what extent is does Flight of the Concords remain a thing, and what what are your schemes for it in the future? Uh, we have been hanging out a bit lately, thinking about a movie idea, so a musical movie. And since we did the show, I've had two singing lessons. So the singing's <laughs> going to be very subtly improved. Much and more deeply I, supported from your diaphragm. Yes, yes, through my whole body. And uh, I think people are going to really appreciate that if we get to that stage. It's it's pretty early on. Well, Jermaine Clement, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. It's been lovely. Jermaine Clement recorded last year. You can catch him in the movies What We Do in the Shadows and People, Places, Things. He's also got a character in the upcoming Disney film, Moana. It's Bullseye. We'll get to my interview with Jonathan Ames in a minute. But first, you heard about Pop Rocket? It's our sister show. 
Pop Rocket's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by the very funny stand-up comic Guy Branham. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hi, Jesse. This week, after the great tension of the election, we thought we would relax talking about dumb comedies. This week, we talk about all of your favorite dumb comedies, like Clue and PCU and The 40-Year-Old Virgin and other better examples that I can't think of right now. It's real fun. (laughs) I'm glad that we're using our valuable airtime to discuss PCU, (laughs) the great Jeremy Piven vehicle. Pop Rocket. Find it in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Hold on. You know what? PCU is a George Clinton vehicle. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. Writer Jonathan Ames loves genre, but by the time he's done with it, he has invariably twisted it into an almost unrecognizable shape. He was a sort of Bukowskian columnist for a while. He's written detective stories and comedies of manners and television, and all of it has been shot through with, I don't know, Amesiness. He has this obsession with shocking and unusual sexuality, non-binary genders, deep-seated neuroses, but he also has an incredible tenderness and faith in human caring. His last TV show was bored to death. Jason Schwartzman played a struggling novelist named Jonathan Ames, who moonlighted as a low-rent detective on Craigslist. Ames's new show is called Blunt Talk. It stars Patrick Stewart as a bloviating cable news host. In the pilot, Stewart's character eats some marijuana edibles, picks up a transgender sex worker, has an emotional breakdown, and ends up fighting off the police using monologues from atop the roof of his Jaguar. Let's hear a little bit of that scene. You will also hear the voice of his loyal manservant, who we find out was passed out in the backseat of the Jag. It is time to get down from the car, Mr. Blood. Whoa! Wait, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, who's that? Hands up, hands up! Major, you seem to have found yourself in a spot of bother. Harry, there you are. Where have you been? I was passed out on the back seat, sir. But you better get down from there. You're surrounded. It's the Falklands all over again, Harry. By land, by sea. Mr. Blunt, get down from the car. I don't feel well, Harry. I ate some chocolate marijuana and it's starting to kick in. My feet are vibrating and my thoughts are odd. I have told you edibles are dangerous, Major. You have to think of them as... Time-release vitamins take very little. Oh, Gertrude, Gertrude, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalion! Mr. Blunt! This is not the audience for Hamlet, Major. It's not? <laughs> Jonathan Ames, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. What's up with you and manservants? You're really into manservants. <laughs> Well, that all started when years ago I read P.G. Woodhouse. Actually, I was an au pair in Paris, an au pair garçon, you know, a male au pair in 1984 in Paris, France. And my au pair mother, whom I had a great Oedipal love for, uh, she gave me P.G. Woodhouse to read. And that's when I first read the Jeeves and Worcester stories. And Jeeves is probably the most famous manservant valet. And then uh, years later, I picked up Woodhouse again during a time of fantastic depression, and reading his prose like lifted me out of my depression. So then I wrote a novel, which was very much an homage to the Jeeves and Worcester novels featuring a valet. So I've just always loved the relationship, this kind of asexual marriage where the servant is actually quite often the master. And I also see it, I guess, as two parts of the brain. You know, when I first wanted to write my Jeeves novel, uh, it was called Home Jeeves because late at night I would be doing bad things in New York. This was probably mid-90s. And I would say to myself, Home Jeeves, as if there was a Jeeves inside me that would take me home. And uh, it it didn't work very often. But every now and then that Jeeves would try to save me and take me home. So I guess I just – there's a dualistic quality. And then I get two actors and I play out, you know, the side – maybe it's ego and id or super ego. And uh, it's just two sides of a self. 
That was a very long-winded opening answer. I apologize. No, look, there's no need to apologize for long, long-windedness on national public radio, Jonathan. <laughs> okay. You were in many ways like uh, a real all-American high school student. Mm-hmm. Um, you were a star athlete, editor of the newspaper, uh, got spectacular grades, great, good enough grades to get into Princeton. Mm-hmm. I guess I wonder what that is like. I mean, not just the external, like the results of it, but like what generates that? Well, let's see. I mean, you paint a rosy picture. I mean, on the inside, I felt like a pimple. Um, (laughs) And if I had a pimple on my face, I felt that that was the only thing visible. And there was a time of great pimples. Yes, I was a pimple. I was a high-achieving pimple, maybe in compensation for feeling like a pimple. And I guess, you know, I wanted to please my mother. Uh, she was a school teacher. And from an early age, you know, there was this goal to get into a good school. And I had a high achieving sister. But, you know, with all that achievement, there was, I never felt like a star. I mean, but I wasn't like I was the star of the football team. I was the captain of the fencing team. And being the editor of the school paper, you know, it was like, not like, being, you know, the best guard on the basketball team. Being the editor of the school paper was cool, though, because I had, like, my own office and I could write people passes. And that's where I really developed a love of writing. Did you want to go to an Ivy League school? Like, did you want that as for yourself? Um, well, I thought I wanted it. Then some things happened where I didn't want it and I showed up there. And then we couldn't really afford it, so I made a very bad mistake at the end of my freshman year, and I joined the Army to pay for school. And I did one of those things where you used to have this thing called two and screw. You could do two years of ROTC, but that rule got changed. So as soon as I signed that contract, I was signed, sealed, and delivered for three years of ROTC, four years of active duty, and eight years of reserve duty. So in one 19-year-old decision, or maybe I was 18, I signed away 15 years of my life, which turned out to be a big mistake. First time I put on a uniform and had to march, I almost vomited. Also, I was a terrible marcher. I had very bad rhythm. You almost vomited because not – I presume not because of the physical exertion, but a – There was something about putting on the uniform, maybe losing a sense of self. I don't know. Or just knowing intuitively that I really made a mistake and that I – you know – Maybe it's just a simple thing of not being a conformist, but, you know, when everyone's in uniform, you're all marching, you know, you, you lose maybe agency or sense of self. And, and I, I also probably felt woefully inadequate. Like I said, it was terrible at marching. I couldn't, you know, clean a gun. I couldn't make a bed. We would go to West Point on the weekends. I didn't know how to properly make a bed. I couldn't build a tent. Luckily, I was with this guy who later became a, a ranger in the first uh, Iraq war. And he was able to build our tent, you know, when we'd, we'd do these weekends and stuff. Anyway, eventually, I, by my junior year, I became a conscientious objector. Um, is marching hard? Marching is hard. And I, my name is Ames. So I was in the far left corner, like the first one, setting the tone for everyone. It was like, you're left, you're left, you're military left. And I was just like, my right was going, my left was going. They would shout at me, Ames, what the, you know. And eventually, by junior year, I began to have a nervous breakdown, went to the head officer, you know, and twice a week, we'd have to be in uniform at school and all this kind of stuff. And these weekends, once a month, we'd go off and do these exercises. I did very well at one. I I, I hid under, I buried a hole and wasn't captured during this like POW thing we did. I spent like eight hours hiding in the woods in West Point. Like I buried myself. Like in one hole? Eight hours in a hole? Well, it seemed like a long time. I don't know. You know, like the... The exercise probably began at like 8, 9 o'clock at night and we were supposed to try to get to this other area and we're running through the woods madly and then these guys were going to be hunting for us and we're supposed to try to get to this other area. But I immediately got kind of cut off from the guys I was with and I found this big tree that had fallen and I just kind of dug under it and buried myself under there and just stayed there for hours rather than trying to get to the other place. And then I emerged around 4 or 5 a.m. as a light was coming up and was one of the few people that hadn't been captured. I hadn't advanced anywhere to the safety zone, but I hadn't been captured. So it was kind of a weird victory. But the, all the Army people were very nice to me. I, because I started having a breakdown, I was sent to Fort Dix and 
spoke to the head guy there, and after him interrogating me for three hours, he goes, you know what? You're a conscientious objector, which was true. I didn't want to learn how to kill people. What did you you and this guy talk about? Uh, he just kept asking me questions like, what, what, was, what were my issues? And he was a really intelligent man. And so then I began a, a long legal process of becoming a conscientious objector, and there was this wonderful group in Philadelphia called... Um, Oh, I, f- I forget what they were called, but it was something established in the 40s when they first came up with the notion of conscientious objection that someone who's joined the military could have a change of conscience about using violence as a means to answer our problems. And so it was, became like this legal ordeal. And I maybe it was called the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors. That's what it was. And and uh, anyway, it took several months, and I had to do all these. I was kind of put on trial. It's a long thing. I won't go into it. But eventually, I was granted conscientious objector status and released from my contract. But I said that I would pay you know, the government back for the almost, I guess, two full years of Princeton tuition. And uh, I had a relative pass away after I had said that, and it was just enough money to pay them back. And then we somehow found enough to pay for senior year. So anyway, all sorts of tangents here. I want to play another clip from Blunt Talk, which is the new star show from my guest, Jonathan Ames. So the protagonist of the show is this guy named Walter Blunt. He Mm -hmm. is a cable news talker Mm -hmm. and also a veteran whose manservant uh, is someone who served under him in the Falklands War Mm -hmm. um, and still calls him Major. Um, And I, I want to play a clip where... Uh, Harry, the the valet, the manservant, is kind of taking care of Walter because that's a big thing that happens in the show. Um, in this clip, he's he's tucking Walter in for bed. You've had quite the day, Major. Hmm. I'm proud of you for not dying. Thank you, Harry. The gods, you know, have given me a second chance. I mean to make the most of it. But now it's time to rest. Hmm. What did Shakespeare say? Sleep that knits a scarf around your neck like a noose. Oh, Harry. Sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. The death of each day's life. Sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds. No, you're right, Major. There's no mention of a scarf. But you get my meaning. Time to rest. Uh. So... Have a sip of mother's milk and it'll be night-night for the Major and night-night for good old Harry. I am serious about this second-chance business. I saw myself tonight as a child and I realise, never having met my own father, I need to be a better father to the American people and, of course, to my own children. Worthwhile goals, sir, Buck. No, I need to revitalise blunt talk. I have to take care of my viewers. And I have to take care of you, Major. You've had a terrible shock. Now, please, take your medicine. (laughs) All right, Harry. You know best. Why did you decide to make Walter Blunt uh, make being a vet so central to his self-identity? Seth MacFarlane wanted to make a comedy uh, with Patrick Stewart. And I was the person that came up with the idea for the comedy. You know, Patrick Stewart has always played heroes, at least, you know, in film and TV. And I guess, and I was thinking of Walter Blunt's age and Patrick's age. And I was like, you know, he would be, he could be a Falklands War veteran because he he looks like a soldier, Patrick. And his father was a soldier and he has a military bearing. And so I thought this man could have been galvanized by this waste of life, you know, in this war to want to become a journalist, to to want to try to right humanity ship, if possible. Um, and so it just became part of his backstory. And then, and then once I had that in mind, then I thought, oh, that could be where he met Harry, and their bond was formed. And later we see what happened to them in the, the Falklands. There's a flashback, and we learn that Walter saved Harry's life, which kind of created this lifelong connection between the two of them. So it just became part of this backstory that I, you know, thread throughout the season to also help illustrate Walter's essential pacifism and, um, you know, value for human life. I'll finish my conversation with Jonathan Ames after a break. We'll talk about what it's like to move from being a solitary writer working alone at home 
to running an entire team of writers and actually an entire television show. Turns out it gets a little stressful. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Songs we love, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One's ready to make driving, cooking, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR One on your app store. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Tushy. Wiping with dry toilet paper has been the norm in America since the 1890s. Tushy believes our bathrooms are ready for a cleaner, healthier, and greener change. Tushy is the sleek bidet that attaches to any standard toilet and is designed to spray your nether regions completely clean and be better for the environment than wiping. It takes just 10 minutes to install yourself. Shop bidets for modern humans at hellotushy.com bullseye or use discount code bullseye for 10% off a Tushy bidet. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Jonathan Ames. He's written countless stories and essays. He created the HBO series Bored to Death. The second series of his show Blunt Talks, which stars Patrick Stewart, is airing now on Stars. So the two television shows that you've created, one being Bored to Death, which ran a few years ago Mm -hmm. on, on HBO, and the new one, Blunt Talk, are probably the weirdest television shows I've ever seen, like mm-hmm. on actual television. <laughs> and I don't mean that in the slightest bit as an insult, mm-hmm. but just like there is a lot of kind of odd specificities to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. that you don't usually get from TV. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like one of the messages of you including odd specificities that feel like they might be ones that like directly relate to your personal experience. Mm-hmm. So hard for me to say, but that's what it feels like, is a kind of empathy and compassion for the odd specificities that we all have in our lives, whether it's being uh, fascinated by uh, transgender sex workers mm-hmm. and for the transgender sex workers, the fact that they, that she is a sex worker and uh, is transgendered. Like both of those feel like real specific things that are treated very sincerely and empathetically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that's kind of one of your goals in revealing these specific things that might be deeply personal to you in a TV show to say we have things that are unusual about all of us. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily perceive the show as weird, you mm-hmm. know, but I can't see it the way one can't necessarily hear one's own voice. So as as to these odd specificities, I guess I do write somewhat autobiographically for all these characters and with the help of my writing staff, I I give all the characters unusual problems. I kind of, you know, parse them out. And I give some of them problems I don't have. Not necessarily problems like one of the characters, you know, is a foot fetishist and shoes. But I don't I, – I do try to treat these things not to exploit them but to – uh, to love the characters. I know it's going to sound a little Pollyanna-ish, but I don't judge them. You know, these characters might be strange or flawed, but we're not making fun of them. You know, uh, we're having fun. When I was in college, I came up with my own little art movement. Uh, you know, there was Dada, which in my understanding from art history was to make fun of art. And then because I'm am a mama's boy and have a lot of Oedipal issues, I thought, well, what about mama? Instead of making fun, we have fun. And so I think that principle has been, you know, I want to have fun. I want the show to be exuberant. I want people to feel good at the end of an episode. You know, I want them to feel like maybe it's like Monty Python, a bunch of nuts on a quest, you know. Let's listen again to some of Blunt Talk, which is the new show on stars from my guest Jonathan Ames. So uh, Walter Blunt, who's the protagonist of the show played by Patrick Stewart, uh, basically has a meltdown uh, and is has to go in and make a deal with the guy who runs the cable network for uh, uh, for which he hosts the show. And the deal is that uh, if he's going to go on uh, the day after he's been arrested for like maybe assaulting a police officer and uh, soliciting prostitution and drunk driving and all this other stuff – uh, it, it's a bipartite deal. One is he has to give the head of the network his uh, Jaguar. It looks like an XJ, a gorgeous mm-hmm. 80s XJ. And then uh, the other thing is he has to go to a therapist 
Uh, and the therapist is uh, uh, played by Richard Lewis. Mm -hmm. Let's listen. You always bring your own couch, Doctor? Yes, I'm a Freudian. So, what's going on? What happened last night? To be frank, I'm drinking more than I should. Recently divorced for the fourth time. There are custody issues. We have a five-year-old boy. And how old is your ex-wife? She's 35. That's very nice. <coughs> and what else uh, may have contributed to uh, last night's behavior? Uh, I think... Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm feeling a bit woozy, Doctor. Probably stress. Or oral anxiety. Oral anxiety. Could be. What were you going to say? It's just that... I'm very, very frightened I will lose my show because I think I will be one of those people who just drops dead when his work is taken away from him. Like Joe Paterno at Penn State. Uh-huh. And I feel my life slipping away from me like a cat that doesn't want to be held. A cat? Not a dog? No, a cat. <laughs> That's one of my favorite exchanges. I wanted to write a good line for Patrick Stewart. My life is slipping away from me like a cat that doesn't want to be held. And then to have Richard Lewis say, a cat, not a dog? And then he makes a note in his notebook. <laughs> He's like, and then Patrick Stewart's like, no, a cat. You know. I like, I'm, really, I'm really fond of the idea that you've cast this therapist character with perhaps the entertainment industry's most visibly nervous human being. I know. He's like, so, so full of anxiety. He's a wonderful guy. <laughs> He's really incredible, Richard Lewis. He was really funny throughout the season. You know, he comes to get everybody on the couch eventually. He cares about these people. He might be terrible as a therapist, though I think he's pretty good, but he really cares for this whole Blunt Talk family. And he begins to just sort of camp out in Walter's office because he just wants to get, give everyone analysis. And at one point, Jackie Weaver, who's wonderful in the role as Rosalie, Walter's like kind of manager and producer, you know, he says to her, I'd like to get you on the couch someday. And then Jackie says, like, Mae West, she goes... I know what lurks inside me, and I'd rather leave it there. You know? <laughs> she turns on her heel. No way. But he eventually does get her on the couch as well. Do you feel comfortable as the creator of a television show, uh, like, running an operation that big? It is very different from sitting at home or in a you know, little office in Manhattan writing a book. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really quite something and, and a real challenge and, and a kind of beautiful responsibility, you know, like, I mean, I probably, in a way, the boss of about 200 people, you know, carpenters, wardrobe, you know, transportation, the people that make the food. It's a big production. You know, we shot for 63 days. We did 300 pages. That's basically the equivalent of three feature films in three months. So, yeah, I've really had to learn, you know, to be a leader. But it's fun to be a leader. You know, I, I try to uh, – my son took a lot of leadership in business classes, and he's ta taught me a lot of things. And so I try to be a leader that collaborates and encourages, you know, and, like, really uh, get the best out of people. And But I used to, in New York, put together a lot of um, – nights of kind of like vaudeville and shows where I would have multiple performers. And and so in some ways I was used to gathering people and then I would emcee the night and at the end I would tell stories. So I had done that for like 10 or 15 years. So there was that. And also I had been a teacher for about 15 years. So being like a showrunner is also a little bit like being a teacher in that you have to convey what you want to everyone, you know, and um, so in that sense, I had some practice putting shows together in New York and then teaching for years to try to be a leader for people. So when it first happened in Bored to Death, I mean, there was definitely bumps in the road and there still are bumps in the road. I wasn't used to working with other writers. I remember crying one time, you know, they were tearing apart my script and I went to the roof of the building and wept privately, you know. Now I, I weep publicly on set. Um, <laughs> but uh, I did cry one time this season, and I, I, had, I became catatonic. There was a moment of stress, and I lost all mobility. But, you know, this, you know, we need to suffer. That's how we learn, you know. 
Jonathan, you know that you can't come on an interview show and say that there was a moment of stress when you cried and became catatonic and not be asked what that was. Oh, well, I, I, you know, I really can't go into it. You know, like most things in life, it it was what was projecting out of my head onto other people's actions or something. I don't know. It was just, I just got confused and upset and, and I don't know, and just sort of crumbled inside. You know, I mean, when you're working those hours, your brain gets so depleted, you know, it's like a, I don't know. It's like a mushroom just filled with air or something. It was like a Friday night, and I just I, I lost it. You know, but that also comes from working together and being together. It's like a circus or a summer stock theater. You know, you have feelings. What was the best advice you ever got from a teacher? I feel like the best advice I've gotten was from this Paris Review book uh, where it took all the interviews and you know, that they've done over the years and broke things down into, like, quotes about beginnings and endings for writing. And there was a David Mamet quote, I think, about beginnings. And he said for a scene, get in late, leave early. So I often think of that, you know, try to get into a scene as late as possible, leave early, you know, before it gets boring. Um, And then there was a P.G. Woodhouse quote, which was, try to give pleasure with every sentence. And so I think that's like trying to take ownership as best you can of every sentence, every paragraph. And then the way it translated to a TV show is try to make every scene, you know, give pleasure with every scene, whether it be the way it's filmed or the dialogue or the situation. But um, and then but mostly what I got from teachers, which I then tried to do as a teacher, was to encourage, you know, like keep going, keep trying. Um, so I don't know, I don't remember specific writing advice, but I always felt like, you know, and I taught many adult evening classes where the students weren't necessarily talented or something like that, but they were trying to make something. They were trying to do something positive. So why not encourage them? I didn't feel like it was my job as a teacher to crush their spirits. So I think that's mostly what I got from a high school English teacher who encouraged me to write. And then from Joyce Carol Oates was, uh, just a pat on the back and keep going. Jonathan Ames, I'm so glad to get to talk to you. I, I hope you'll come back to Bullseye again another time. It's it's really nice to see you. Oh, likewise, and sorry if some of my answers went on too long or strangely. Jonathan Ames' show, Blunt Talk, which stars an amazing Patrick Stewart, airs Saturday nights on the Stars Network, uh, and it is delightful. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host, It's the outshot. So I'm going to call it the who moved my cheese incident. Once at Uncle Charlie's cabin, I read all of the books that I had brought with me, and I ended up reading Who Moved My Cheese, the business leadership parable. Honestly, I do not remember anything about who moved my cheese, besides that it was actually literally a parable involving cheese being moved, and I think some mice and also that it was the best summer reading choice on the entire cabin bookshelf, as in, I should have definitely brought some more books. Uncle Charlie, by the way, the Uncle Charlie of Uncle Charlie's Cabin, is not my uncle. I think he's my wife's mother's uncle? Something like that. The cabin's up in the high Sierras in the National Forest. There's no internet, no cell phone service, just 10 family members and a whole bunch of trees. When I'm up there, I cook and read. Sometimes I read too fast. That's how I ended up reading a business book. It was a very slightly better option than the memoir of the guy who died and went to heaven for 20 minutes, which, by the way, proves that heaven is real. When I went up for a couple of days last week, though, I brought three books with me. When you have little kids, which I do, and your job requires a lot of reading, which mine does, it is a luxury to just sit on the couch and read whatever book you want. And as anybody who grew up in a you know, a sort of dicey home nose, when you start to feel a little socially itchy, a book is a great way to escape and and cool off for a minute. Not that that would ever happen uh, when you're in a two-bedroom cabin with your wife, your two small children, and six in-laws. Anyway, up at the cabin, I read two and a half books in the first three days, and then I had to nurse the last half a book for about 48 hours so I wouldn't run out. But I paced myself, and I made it through. And all in all, it was a pretty great trip. 
I cooked a couple big dinners. I hung out with my in-laws for five days without getting annoyed or uncomfortable one time. And I read three great books. And uh, the books, uh, Roddy Doyle's The Commitments, Fletch by Gregory MacDonald, and 52 Pickup by Elmore Leonard. The Elmore Leonard one was especially great. Uh, The dinners were meatloaf and an Italian Sunday gravy. Also recommended. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Producer at MaximumFun.org is Christian Duenas. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Kara Hart. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about cool culture stuff between now and the next time Bullseye airs, find us on Facebook or on Twitter. We're at Bullseye. I'm at Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.